Did you catch that? That they said that I still carry so much of you with me. Dad, you're leaving a, a legacy in your children's hearts and lives that will go with them for the rest of their lives. So that's why we wanted to say we are grateful for all that you are and all that you do. Want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter seven. It says Luke 10, but actually I made a mistake on that. That's Luke seven verses one through 10. Luke seven, one through 10. There's a mountain climber from the past. He was somewhat of a legend named Royal Robbins. Someone asked him, what's the one great essential for climbing mountains? You might be surprised at what he said. He said, well, even though physical strength is needed, it's not the physical strength. That's not the one great essential. He said, even though you need the right equipment, it's not the best equipment. That's not the one essential. The one great essential is the ability to see things as they really are. The ability to see things as they really are. He said that climbing is an exercise in reality. I found that out in my early 40s. I'm not gonna tell you how old I am now, but I climbed Mount Fuji when I was a missionary there, went all the way to the top. It stands at 12,388 feet. But I remember having a, an experience that I would call a reality check because the higher I went, the more I kept thinking, somebody's doing something with the air. And so it was uh, a little thinner up there. So breathing got a little bit harder and then I had to adjust my speed. I mean, when we started out, I'm like, man, let's run up this thing. But I didn't do that very long. But anyway, I was just saying, that's, that's tough. And then when I came down, you won't believe it. Have you ever had not your calf muscle, but your shin muscle to get sore? It was so straight down that I was kind of, you know, putting a lot of pressure on my shin muscles that had never been there. But I had another reality check when I had my two daughters. I think that fatherhood brings a whole reality check of its own. I think it requires that a man wake up to responsibility, that a man grow up in terms of maturity. Often that's when men, I've seen it, they look up and they say, God, this is overwhelming that these young ones are looking to me. Have you ever been there? I think in my life, there were three times when I was raising my daughters that reality rang the bell. The terrible twos. Have you ever gone through that stage? I had another bell rung somewhere in the teenage years. I don't know where it was. I'm not sure it ever stopped. I can still hear it ringing. But then just wait till they get in college. The tuition bell, it will ring. I almost feel like I need a t-shirt survivor. You know, I made it. You know, godly men, godly men. Godly men look to the scriptures for their definition of manhood. We don't look to culture. We don't look to society. We don't look to media. We look to God's word to tell us, what does it mean, Lord, to actually be a man? John Piper and Wayne Grudem wrote a book summarizing the Bible's teaching about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and fathers. And these were the things that they said, yeah, there's more, but this is, this is gonna cover the main ideas. They summarized fatherhood by growing in maturity in five basic areas. The first one, humility before God. A godly man continues to realize how he needs God. 
He acknowledges God. He looks to God. And so it produces this humility before God within him. There's also this control of his appetites. And when I say appetites, I mean control of his morals, control of his emotions. So he just doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't just do things that are crazy. But also a godly man is willing to protect his family. A godly man wants to provide for his family. And a godly man certainly wants to lead his family. He knows that God looks to him to be the leader. Do you know that in scripture, there was only one man in the New Testament that actually caused Jesus, the son of God, to marvel? What causes you to marvel at a man? I don't even know this man's name, but I can show you his life It's recorded for us here in this passage in Luke 7, 1 to 10. What was it about this man that caused Jesus to be so impressed? Was it his strength? How much could he bench press? It doesn't say. What about his wealth? What about his position? What about his intelligence? What about his religion? It wasn't those things. This man had the unique ability to see things as they really were. How about you? I want to ask if you would look with me at Luke chapter seven, verses one through 10. We've been going through Luke. We've paused for a while, but now we're ready to get back after what God has to say to us through the gospel of Luke. But Luke seven, one through 10, would you stand in honor of God's word? God's word is not like other books. God's word is inerrant. It's infallible. It speaks to every generation. It will guide you. Sir, if you will just look into it to see what God will say. Here's what it says in Luke 7 about this man. Verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, once again, we bow our hearts and we say to you, speak to us 
through your living word. It can pierce the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It goes way down into the heart. Lord, way down in our hearts, convince us of biblical truth, especially concerning manhood. Lord, our nation desperately needs you to clarify this. What is a man? Would you say to us today what you think is impressive manhood? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. The centurion demonstrates the six essentials, I believe, of biblical manhood. Let's look at them one by one. First, I believe that biblical manhood would be for a man of compassion, not a man of coldness, not a man who's cruel and rude. The context, actually, we're in Luke 7, but if you were to go back into Luke 6, you would discover that Jesus had just finished speaking to a whole lot of people at what they call the Sermon on the Mount. It was all about discipleship. Luke 6, verse 17, all the way down through verse 49, all about what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But now it's like he's gonna transition. Luke says, I tell you what, why don't we see an example of discipleship? Why don't we see an example of someone who's moving in the right direction? This took place in a location called Capernaum. It was a lake town, a lake community around the Sea of Galilee. It was perhaps the biggest one. It was the base where Jesus would work out of Capernaum. But Capernaum is actually the place where 11 of the 33 miracles that the New Testament documents that Jesus Christ performed, 11 of those 33 all took place in this place, Capernaum. Wow. And so now we come to verse two and we see a certain man, a certain man who's called a centurion. It meant that he was a Roman officer. Centurions were over 100 men. I'm sure you've heard the word century, but this man is a centurion. So he commands at least 100 other men. Someone has said he today, could perhaps be the equivalent of the rank of a captain. But the interesting thing is he had a crisis in his personal life. It wasn't with him personally, but it says here in the text that he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Hmm, that's not unusual, but what is unusual is that he was highly valued by him. Most centurions didn't have this caring attitude. Maybe they were cold in most cases. Maybe they were always critical in most cases. It would be rare for there not to be animosity between them. But he has compassion. It says he highly values this servant. You know what compassion means, right? Compassion means to suffer with. Compassion means your pain winds up in my heart. That's when you know you have compassion. Aren't you glad that the Father reveals in Scripture that He has compassion? What if God said, I don't really care. They've gotten themselves into all this, so I don't really care about those humans down there. But instead, in Isaiah 49, 13, in Isaiah 54, 8, 
Psalm 103, 13, Exodus 22, 27, and countless other places, God says, I am compassionate. Are you rejecting a God that doesn't really exist today? I think sometimes people think God's not compassionate. God doesn't care about me. And all the time, in the still small voice of his Holy Spirit, through the word of God, God is telling you, yes, I do care about you. Even the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the father sent his son to down a cross for us to show how much he cares about us, his compassion toward us. And when Jesus walked this earth, sometimes he would see a big crowd of people. And you know what it says that he felt toward them? Compassion. He felt compassion. Matthew 9, 36 and Mark 6, 34. Since today's Father's Day, I thought I would remind you of a parable that Jesus taught. It was about a dad and he had two sons. Both of these sons were broken, just like today. But one son said, you know what? I want my inheritance early. I'm gonna go to the city. I'm tired of hanging around the ranch. I'm ready to go where things are happening. So he wasn't supposed to get his inheritance until his father passed away. But the son was focused on his own self, his own life. So the, the dad said, okay. So to the younger son, he gives him his inheritance. He goes and he wastes it in the city. He wounds up being in a pig pen, longing for just what the pigs were eating. But then he says, I had it better back home. So he's gonna go back home. You won't believe where Jesus has the dad in the parable. The dad is standing by the roadside. And when the son is still a great way off, the dad sees him. So is the dad gonna say, I knew you'd be back. That's not the way he comes across. The dad runs, closes the distance. He embraces the son. And the scripture says, Jesus said that dad was compassionate. He said, let's put a ring on his finger. Let's put, give him a new robe. Let's kill the fatted calf. We're gonna throw a party because my son that was lost has now come home. Perhaps there's someone in your family, dad. You're praying for them. What will be your attitude toward them? Will you be critical when they do come back or will you be compassionate when they come back? There's a second biblical quality that I think biblical manhood would include. You see, this man was impressive because it also shows that God calls a man out of apathy into action. Have you ever known any that were sort of apathetic? Several articles have been written in recent months about Americans, not just men, but Americans in general. Do you know that there's an epidemic of apathy? It's like this indifference inertia where no one seems to really wanna do anything. And so we need to return to the place of saying, I will be active because God has made me to be active. You know, in the New Testament, there are several men that God inspired to write these verses, but one of those is a man named Paul. And he wrote to a group in Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, there were people who were suffering with lethargy. They were just being lazy. And listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. The Holy Spirit gives these words to a man to write to other men and probably beyond men. He says, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking 
in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying idleness and laziness, it's unacceptable for a Christian. It says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One thing my dad taught me, there are many things. He taught me how to get along with people, but he certainly taught me this, to have a work ethic. Did your dad, did you see your dad working hard? That's not something to overlook. Let it go into your DNA, whether you're a son or a daughter, whether you're a grandson or a granddaughter. Say, you know what? I'm gonna be someone who works hard, someone who's active. You know, Proverbs actually says, we're not called to be pew potatoes, couch potatoes. Proverbs 10:4 contrasts two kinds of hands. Which kind of hand do you have? One kind of hand, it's called the slack hand. Have you ever known any slackers? Slack hands lead to poverty. Diligent hands lead to prosperity. Proverbs 12, 24 says, diligent hands will rule, but laziness ends in forced labor. Wow. You know, this centurion had a role and a responsibility. He was a busy man. He'll give his reason a little bit later on why he didn't go to Jesus himself. But as soon as he heard Jesus was in town, he was on it. He was acting. He wasn't apathetic. He wasn't going to procrastinate. Are you procrastinating on anything in your life? Let's move to the third characteristic of real men. Real men are interested in honor, not hypocrisy, not deception. You see, deception and hypocrisy, they're hollow. But a man who's full of this desire to want to do things that are honorable, that man is not hollow. He has substance and content. It's strange that the Jewish elders would plead with Jesus earnestly about anything. Why would the, Jew the Jewish elders didn't even like Jesus? And typically, the Jewish elders... They didn't like Romans, much less Roman centurions. So why? Why would they actually plead with Jesus? We'll find out in a minute. But here you hear them say, here's why. Because this centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. He's worthy. You know, this was a turning point for Jesus in his ministry. Up until this moment, he's been focusing exclusively upon the Jews, but here he begins to change and to say, you know what, my message is for everybody. 
my message will even be for Roman centurions. There was a Greek historian named Polybius, and he wrote a lot about what things were like during this time period. And one of the things he wrote about was centurions. He said, typically they were men of good character, not bad character. They were men who were competent. They were not daredevils, they were natural leaders. They would not initiate attacks. They would hold their ground though. If they are attacked, they'll hold their ground and they're willing to die, even if they're under hard press circumstances. But here's these Jewish elders saying to Jesus, this guy's a man of honor, he's worthy. What will they say about us when we're no longer here? You know, the fourth quality, this man was impressive also because he was known for generosity, not greed. Generosity, not greed. These Jewish leaders explained to Jesus that this man loved his nation. I think that's important. When you love where you live and you want to build up rather than tear down. He said, I want to build up this nation of Israel where I'm stationed. You know, wherever we are planted, that's where we should bloom. We should bloom where we're planted. The phrasing meant this guy alone had funded the building of a new synagogue in Capernaum. Let me read it again. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Wow. You know, Psalms talks about those that are generous. And here's what it says in Psalm 112 and verse five. It is well with the man who deals generously, who conducts his affairs with justice. I like that. Proverbs also talks about it in Proverbs 11:24. It said, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. How does that happen? How is it when you give, you get even more well, it says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Doesn't make sense, does it? There's something about being a kind and generous person. I believe that a godly man is also a man of humility, not haughtiness. The Jewish leaders stretched the centurion's message. I don't believe he told them, now you go tell Jesus that I want him to come to my house. You tell him that I'm worthy and I expect him to come to my place. I think when word got back to that centurion, he was so embarrassed. He thought, no way. They stretched what I told them to do. So notice what the centurion does. Who does he call? Not the Jewish elders now. He calls his friends. Every man needs friends. I encourage you brothers in Christ, surround yourself with godly brothers that will stand with you during the hard times, that will stand with you whenever there's some misunderstanding of some kind. But I just found it interesting that he sends his friends and he says, you guys need to clarify what I actually said about Jesus helping my servant. And they said, okay, tell us, tell us and we'll give it exactly like you say it. So what does he say? He says, you know what? There's two things wrong with what you heard, Jesus. The first thing is, I don't feel worthy. I'm not worthy. And the second thing is, don't trouble yourself to have to come to my house. I've heard what you can do. I've heard who you are. 
you're the son of God. You can just say it and it happens. I'm not worthy for you to come underneath my roof. See, a lot of times we feel God owes us, but does he really? I mean, we're breathing his air. We're drinking the water he provided. We're using the health that he gives. Does God really owe us? Or is it the other way around? Don't we owe him? You know, I can't, can't believe the development of humility that happened in the Apostle Paul. You see, the Apostle Paul was a preacher. He was an apostle. But if you only knew him before, you would have said, that dude is so full of pride and haughtiness. There's no way he'll ever be humble. Oh, really? Well, he met Jesus Christ. And I wanna, if you're a note taker, I wanna give you three verses and three periods of time in his life. Over a 10 year, 11 year stretch of time, I want you to hear what he wrote in the New Testament letters. In AD 55, he wrote a letter called 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the man who once was prideful says this, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. So what he's saying is, yeah, God's called me to be a leader, but if you want the truth about it, I'm not worthy to be a leader. I'm not worthy to be called one of the top apostles. He said, just put me down at the bottom the least of the apostles. That's AD 55. Six years later, he writes Ephesians. You won't believe what he's gonna write now. He doesn't say, I'm not worthy to be called the most impressive apostle. No, here's what he writes. I'm the least of all the saints. If you're gonna make a list and a lineup of all the Christians, well, why don't you put me at the end and say, yep, he's kind of like the bottom of the rung there. But then five years after that in AD 66, he writes Timothy. First Timothy, second Timothy are like the last written correspondence that we have from the man named Paul. He's humbling himself before God and you won't believe what he says next. He says, you know, I've already said I'm the least of the apostles. I've already said I'm the least of all the Christians. First Timothy 1.15, he says, if you wanna give me a title, the one that you write this, he's the chief among sinners. He's the foremost sinner. Write that about my life. Wow. You know, sometimes we feel that we've got such a reason to be prideful and arrogant and haughty and all those kind of things, but it's only because we can't see the way a holy God sees. You know, before the 17th century, if you could see through water, People just assumed it's good to drink. Man, drink it. You see a stream that's clear, just drink it. There's, there's nothing bad in that water. But along came 1674 and a Dutch businessman and scientist named Antone van Leeuwenhoek. I tried to work on that all week. I probably butchered it. But anyway, he became the father of microbiology. Let's just put it there. He put a drop of what he thought was clear, pure water under a microscope. And he looked at it and they said, why do you look so shocked like you saw a ghost? He said, because in the clear, pure water, I see some critters swimming around, <laughs> you know? It's like, whoa! You know, 600 years before the father sent his son Jesus to this earth, 
there was an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 17, nine, here's what he says about the human heart. He says, you know, the human heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why none of us should strut around and say, look at me and who I am. We all should be pointing to Christ and to the cross saying, he's my righteousness. He's the only good thing going on in my life. Well, I wanna close with one last thing. The most impressive thing about this man was not his strength. It was not his skill. It was not his success. It was his faith, his faith. It was his faith, not his flesh. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, contrasts three types of men. Do you remember that time I put the, the thrones of a man's heart up there? And I said that a natural man has self on the throne. Without yielding to Christ, we're gonna make decisions in our life that we think are best. We're running things. That's the natural man. We don't have the spirit of God helping us. That's why life is hard, frustrating. But then he becomes a spiritual man when he yields his life and he says, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you for the rest of my life. Jesus takes the throne. The man comes off the throne. Everything unites in his life. But then something happens along the way. Sometimes, not always. We become what's called a fleshly man, carnal man, carnal Christian, where now for some reason we're saying to Jesus, you can sit down here, I need to be back at the control tower. I need to be on the throne. Life is about me. I make my decisions. I don't make my decisions based on your word. And so we see the difference between a man of faith and a man of flesh. You see, this man was a man of faith. Here's the things I learned about faith from this man. The first thing is faith involves confidence, not in your ability, not in my ability, in Christ's ability. Do you hear what he says at verse seven? Let my servant be heard, healed. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, he had confidence. I can't help my servant, but all you gotta do is say it. That is true biblical faith. But also there's this comprehension of Christ's authority. How did this man understand Christ's authority? Because he was a man, he says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, he goes. To another, come, he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Lord Jesus, I understand how authority works. And all you gotta do is give the command because I comprehend authority. Do you comprehend how much authority that Jesus Christ has? The authority that he's willing to share with us when we're men to spiritually lead our homes. So when we abdicate that and we take it away from Christ, we open up our family to all kinds of things that they wouldn't have if the man was saying, I believe Jesus, you're the authority, not me. Let's go to the third thing. He's also conscious of accountability to Christ. He's conscious of accountability to Christ because whatever he said, here was Jesus' response. He's like, wow, I don't think he did this. I mean, we do that these days, but I don't think he, he did that. But he's like, wow, he marveled at him. He turns to the crowd and says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. 
You see, whatever we do, however we live, I just want you to know that in eternity, even in this life, we will be held accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to say, okay, I'm gonna live for you, Lord, with everything I've got. But then notice the conclusion according to Christ's actuality. You see, Jesus wasn't actually in the house, right? He wasn't there. He never went to this centurion's house. Jesus wasn't in the house, okay? This servant really was sick. He's about to die. But you know what Jesus can do? This is something only he can do. He can take something that looks hopeless and turn it right around and everything changes. It says that when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Can you imagine? Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? Only the Lord can do something like that. I wanna encourage you to do something if you're a man. I wanna encourage you to look up the word centurion in the New Testament because there's a famous preacher from the past named G. Campbell Morgan, and I ran across a sermon entitled The Seven Centurions of the New Testament. I think it'd be a manly study to do in the Bible. But this morning we studied the first of the seven centurions, and I would call him the impressive centurion. But I wanna close by saying, how about we also learn from the expressive centurion? You see, centurion number two was at the foot of the cross. When they crucified Jesus on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for our sins, he died there willingly as a substitute to pay the price because somebody's got to pay the price. And when the centurion that was in charge of, the, of that group of soldiers that day saw it, he said something. Luke says that the man said, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew records, truly this man was the son of God. Mark records, truly this man was the son of God. You see, what is your profession about Christ? His profession was, you know what? He's sufficient because he's innocent. His death counts. It can atone for my sin. But then I noticed that he also says, he, is, he was the son of God. He's a sacred sacrifice. The Father gave His Son. How much more love do you need than to know that the Father gave His Son for you and for me? But then He was also a substitutionary sacrifice. When He says, truly this man, truly this man was the Son of God. What balance right there. Yes, He was 100% the Son of God. He was also 100% Son of Man. How can that be? I don't know. But all I know is it's true. And all I know is that's why he could die as the substitute for your sins and mine. And it counts, it covers. Wow. Each of these men publicly profess their faith in Christ. Could this be the day that you too will publicly confess Jesus before others and say, you know what? He died for me. I'm not gonna be ashamed of him. You see, the first centurion that we studied he confessed his faith in Christ before some people. Run it back through your mind one more time. He confessed his faith in Christ before the Jewish leaders. They weren't really in favor of Jesus, but he said, I want you to go to Jesus for me. 
But then he also confessed his faith in Christ in front of his friends. Would you be willing to let your friends know that you are saved by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus' death on the cross? Would you be willing to say, I need Jesus? But he also confessed his faith in Christ to a sick employee. And he said, you know what? He, he's the only one that can help you. I'm sending word to go ask Jesus. Three different groups this man confessed his faith before. But then notice this second centurion. He's professing Christ in front of his fellow soldiers. Wow. Who are you professing Christ in front of? I encourage you as a man to say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. There's not one thing shameful about him. There's something to stand up and say, yeah, I will follow him until my last breath. I want to invite you to stand with me. You know, Luke 9.26 says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the son of man be ashamed? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Like I said, there's nothing shameful about his life whatsoever. He died an innocent man for you and for me to pay the price our sin debt. We're the ones that had sinned, not him. And yet he died to cleanse us to make it possible for you and me to be in his family. Wow, it's important for a man who's in his family. So would you say, I need Christ? I'm gonna give you an opportunity. We're gonna sing a song. And during this song, I'll be standing down here. If you just need somebody to pray with, I'll pray with you. Or maybe you'd say, I don't really need to talk to a man. I need to get on my knees and talk to God. So whatever it is, would you just respond to the Lord the way you need to. Even staying where you are, just talking to him there, singing this next song with all your heart, whatever that means, you say, Lord, I'm coming to you to surrender. Father, thank you so much for giving us this passage of scripture. We've looked at it in depth today, but now it's time to go beyond just study. We don't wanna be like James 1 says, we can look in the word like we look into a mirror and then we walk away and forget what we saw. Help us not forget what we saw. I pray that this week we wouldn't just study it, we'd live it. Help us to be the men. Help us to model biblical manhood for our sons, for our daughters, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for those that are all around us. Help them be able to look at us and say, you know what, that man reminds me of Jesus Christ. So bless us, oh Lord, if there's anybody here that hasn't repented of sin and put their faith and trust in Christ yet. I pray this would be the day. I pray that like that centurion standing at the foot of the cross, that they would say, I really believe he died for me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.